Welcome to Exceptional Excerpts. My name is Doug Jones, and I've taught at the university, high school, and middle school levels for over 30 years. And I'm constantly on the lookout for engaging, well-written texts in history, politics, the arts, literary analysis, theology, philosophy, and more. The books that grip me are of high quality, but they often don't make the bestseller lists, though I wish they did. In prepping my classes, I run across so many excellent contemporary texts, and I often try to hook my students on them. Of late, I've found myself wanting to share them with my colleagues and friends, but the books themselves always do a better job than my secondhand descriptions. So I thought I'd put together a podcast series and just read excerpts to see if they can tease you to go out and get the rest of the book yourself. I don't make money from this. I just love the discussion these books can stir up. My plan is to keep the excerpts to around five to seven minutes each and then go on to the next without any commentary from me. In each podcast, I hope to include five to seven excerpts from different books. In between, I'll sometimes throw in notable poems and parables from notable artists. I hope you'll get hooked as I have. In the first episode, I'll read excerpts from the following texts. A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare by James Shapiro, The Wars of Reconstruction by Douglas Egerton, The Electric Life of Michael Faraday by Alan Hirschfeld, Nixon Land by Rick Perlstein, Why Poetry by Matthew Sapruder. Let's get started. A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, 1599, James Shapiro, Harper Perennial Publishers, 2005. James Shapiro is professor at Columbia University in New York and author of Rival Playwrights. Prologue, excerpts. The weather in London in December 1598 had been frigid, so cold that ten days before the New Year's, the Thames was nearly frozen over at London Bridge. It thawed right before Christmas, and hardy playgoers flocked to the outdoor Rose Playhouse in Southwark in record numbers. But the weather turned freezing cold again on St. John's Day, the 27th, and a great snowstorm blanketed London on December 28th. As the snow fell, a dozen or so armed men gathered in Shoreditch, in London's northern suburbs, instead of the clubs usually wielded in London's street brawls or apprentice riots. They carried deadly weapons, swords, daggers, bills, axes, and such like. Other than the Tower of London, which housed England's arsenal, about the only place to come by some of the larger weapons were the public theatres, where they were used to give a touch of realism to staged combat. In all likelihood, these weapons were borrowed from the Curtain Playhouse, near Finsbury Field, temporary home of the Chamberlain's men. The armed men didn't have far to go. Their destination was another playhouse in Shoreditch, the nearby theatre. The theatre, built in 1576, was London's oldest and most celebrated playhouse, nursery of the great drama of Thomas Kidd, Christopher Marlowe, and Shakespeare. It was here, a few years earlier, that audience heard the ghost who cried so miserably at the theatre like an oyster wife, Hamlet Revenge. Not Shakespeare's play, but an earlier, now lost Hamlet. 
As the men approached the hulking building, the theater itself must have seemed a ghostly presence. Vacant now, for two years in the aftermath of a fallout between the Chamberlain's men and their prickly landlord, Giles Allen. Local residents, seeing the armed troop approach, may well have been confused about what was happening during this week of holiday revels, for at the head of the group was the leading tragedian of England, the charismatic star of the Chamberlain's men, Richard Burbage. But this was no impromptu piece of street theater. Burbage, his older brother Cuthbert, and the rest of the men bearing weapons were there in deadly earnest, about to trespass and take back what they considered rightfully theirs, and if necessary come to blows with anyone trying to stop them. The Chamberlain's men were in trouble, and the only way out was to get in a bit deeper. Things had begun to go wrong two years earlier when James Burbage, Richard and Cuthbert's father, and the man who built the theater, decided to build an indoor stage in the wealthy neighborhood of Blackfriars. The venue would have enabled his son Richard and the other shareholders of the Chamberlain's men to act year-round for a more upscale and better-paying clientele, providing more security than they had at the theater, where the lease was expiring. James Burbage sank the considerable sum of six hundred pounds into the venture. As the Blackfriars Theater neared completion, influential neighbors who were worried about the noise and riffraff the theater might attract succeeded in having playing band there. James Burbage died soon after, having also failed to renegotiate an extension on his lease at the theater. His sons Richard and Cuthbert had no better luck changing Giles Allen's mind. With the Burbage's capital tied up at Blackfriars, and the theater now in Allen's hands, the Chamberlain's men, lacking a permanent playing space, were in danger of becoming homeless. By early December, Richard Burbage had quietly approached five of his fellow actor shareholders in the company, William Shakespeare, John Hemmings, Austin Phillips, Thomas Pope, and Will Kemp, with a plan. The first thing they needed to do was find a new site for a theater, one that was accessible to London's playgoers, but outside the city limits, where playhouses weren't subject to the authority of the often hostile city fathers. Members of the company, probably Hemmings or Condal, who lived in the parish of St. Mary Aldermanbury, had learned that a neighbor, Sir Nicholas Brend, was looking to rent some land in Southwark. The property was a stone's throw from the Rose Theatre, home of their main rivals, the Admiral's men. The Chamberlain's men quickly came to terms with Brend, securing an inexpensive 31-year lease that was theirs from Christmas Day. The transaction was rushed, and it wasn't until late February that the paperwork was completed. They now had a building site, but as yet no theater. In the past, when they had provided a playhouse and covered the lease, the Burbages kept the lion's share of the profits. No longer able to supply the company with a permanent home, Richard and Cuthbert Burbage made an unprecedented offer. They would secure the building materials for a new playhouse worth roughly 700 pounds. If the five actor shareholders would each cover 10% of the remaining construction costs, as well as the expenses of running the theater. The material would come from the dismantled theater, the pieces of its frame carefully marked and reassembled on Bankside. They'd still have to do it on the cheap. No tiles on the roof, as at the theater, just inexpensive and flammable thatch. 
In exchange, and for the first time in the history of the professional theater in London, actor sharers would be part owners of the playhouse as well as partners in the company, the five men each receiving 10% of the total profits. The potential yield on their investment would be great, over a hundred pounds a year. Still, that initial investment, roughly 70 pounds each, was considerable at a time when a freelance dramatist earned just six pounds a play and a day laborer 10 pounds a year. The risks were also great. Few had that kind of cash on hand, which meant taking out loans at steep interest rates. When the armed group arrived at the playhouse, they set at work immediately. Even with an early start, there wouldn't be much daylight. The sun had risen that morning after eight and would set before four in the afternoon. It was four days shy of a full moon, but with the snow coming down, there was little prospect of working by moonlight. According to evidence submitted in the heated legal battle that followed, their appearance quickly drew a crowd. Friends and tenants of Allen, as well as supporters of the Chamberlain's men, including Ellen Burbage, James's feisty widow, and we can be pretty sure that the other shareholders, whose livelihoods were at stake, Shakespeare, Phillips, Hemmings, Kemp, and Pope, were at the scene as well, among the unnamed, diverse other persons accompanying the Burbages. Of all those gathered at the theater that day, none stood to gain or lose as much as Shakespeare. Had the escapade failed, had Allen been forewarned, or had he succeeded in his subsequent court battle against the seizure, Shakespeare's alternatives would have been limited. It's hard to see how the Chamberlain's men could have survived for so long as an ensemble without a permanent playhouse. But Shakespeare understood that more was at stake in rescuing those old oak posts than his livelihood as a playwright. He was not simply England's most experienced living dramatist, author, or collaborator on roughly 18 plays, including such favorites as Richard III, Romeo and Juliet, and the first part of Henry IV. He also wrote for and acted alongside its most talented ensemble of players. The Chamberlain's men had been together for five years, having emerged out of the remnants of broken and reconfigured companies, its players drawn from among the best of those who had recently performed with Sussexes, Derbys, Pembrokes, Stranges, and the Queen's men. As darkness fell on December 28th, the old frame of the theater, loaded onto wagons, with horses slipping and straining from the burden of hauling the long half-ton, foot-square oak posts, began to make its way south, through the streets carpeted with snow. The wagons headed through Bishopsgate and southwest to Peter Street's waterfront warehouse near Bridewell Stairs, where the timber was unloaded and safely stacked and stored. The popular story of the dismantled frame being drawn across or over the Thames, which was nigh frozen over, to the future building site is a fantasy. It would have been too risky sledding the heavy load across thin ice, and the steep tolls on London Bridge for wheelage and poundage would have been prohibitive. And had the timber been left exposed to the elements through the winter months at the marshy side of the globe, it would have been warped beyond repair if not subject to counter-raid by Giles Allen's friends. Not until the foundations were ready would the frame of the theater be ferried across the Thames to Southwark, where by late summer, Phoenix-like, it would be resurrected as the globe.
the wars of Reconstruction, the brief, violent history of America's most progressive era, by Douglas Edgerton, published by Bloomsbury Press, 2014. Douglas Edgerton is professor of history at Lemoyne College, New York, and the author of five books. Excerpts from Chapter 8, An Absolute Massacre. Clan violence was rarely random, and white raiders did not simply assault blacks for being black. Carolina Assemblyman Benjamin F. Randolph, who was murdered on the eve of the 1868 election, was typical of those targeted for removal. During that same year, Klansmen killed two other black legislators in South Carolina and another in Arkansas. In Camilla, Georgia, Democrats opened fire on a Republican parade, killing or wounding 20 black marchers, and a black Georgia assemblyman was dragged from his home and nearly beaten to death. Black politicians were not safe even within the walls of southern state houses. After Tunis Campbell rose in the Georgia Senate to protest his expulsion, the Federal Congress demanded his reinstatement. He was warned that there were eight men stationed on the front and side gallery above the Republican members, each armed with revolvers. When Campbell refused to be silenced, a number of nervous senators then moved away from his seat. Klansmen also assaulted any black male for acting the big man, since assertive freedmen tended to be the type of freedmen to join the Union League or attend political rallies. White Republicans, regardless of where they were born, attracted almost as much violence as their black brethren. Despite hailing from Georgia and once having owned slaves, Unionist William Hugh Smith had opposed secession and fled to federal lines in 1862. After being elected governor of Alabama in 1868, Smith was routinely harassed by Democrats who hoped to intimidate him into quitting his office as he spoke around the state. In Sumter County, Smith gave a speech at the courthouse, while one listener, very much in liquor, stood close to the governor with a large knife in his hand drawn, while several others came in with revolvers on their persons. Smith was finally drowned out by insulting remarks from the audience, but he was allowed to depart alive. Northern men were often less lucky. Charles Stearns, an abolitionist who settled in Georgia, ran for judge in Columbia County and won by 1,200 votes. As he traveled his circuit, however, mobs attended his courts, shouting that Stearns had been elected by nigger votes and that the niggers had no right to vote. Having fought beside free soilers in bleeding Kansas, Stearns was no coward, but after Democrats dragged him from his home and savagely beat a black employee, the judge resigned his position and returned to Massachusetts. It seems that no Yankee who does his duty can live down south, one of Ames's correspondents reported after witnessing the murder of a Republican chief of police. The assassin can do his bloody work without fear of punishment, so long as he confines himself to the butchery of northern men. Although white violence spiked on the eve of Grant's election, it dissipated only slightly during his first term in office and spiked again during the 1870 off-year elections. When Republicans staged a rally in Norfolk featuring John Mercer Langston, recently appointed dean of Howard University Law School, and ex-governor Henry H. Wells, a Rochester-born general who had gained fame for his role in cornering John Wilkes Booth in a Virginia barn, 
armed Democrats shoved their way close to the podium. Langston attempted to speak over their jeers and catcalls, but when the small band of outnumbered policemen tried to quell the disturbance, Whites fired several volleys from small arms. As the audience scattered in every direction, a few blacks returned fire. Miraculously, nobody was killed, but John T. Daniel, a prominent white Republican, was shot in the head, and many whites and blacks were wounded. The next morning, patrols found a dead black man, badly cut, and tossed into an alley near the rally. The ex-rebels at Norfolk have been emulating the example of friends at Mobile and New Orleans, explained one Republican, yet they insist that the South is as tolerant of Republican sentiments as the North. In the years prior to the war, crowds of African Americans, whether praying peacefully in churches or talking in low voices on city street corners, always unnerved whites, and some former Confederates blamed the escalating violence on Northern Republicans who encouraged blacks to vote and stand for office. Black veterans required no encouragement, of course, but as former Governor Benjamin F. Perry explained in a public letter of 1871, the colored people of South Carolina behaved well during the war and would have continued to do so but for the unprincipled carpetbagger who came among them and stirred up hatred to the white race. All of the lawlessness and violence sweeping the state was the logical result of organized colored troops and post-war black militia companies. On the advice of Republican Governor Robert K. Scott, a former general and bureau official, black veterans organized the National Guard Service of South Carolina, and President Grant ordered an additional 12 infantry and four cavalry companies into the state. The show of force was strictly defensive, but soldiers could not be everywhere, and their transfer inevitably dampened violence in one location only to allow it to erupt in another. Just two weeks before the Norfolk riot, a Democratic mob in Greene County, Alabama, assaulted Congressman Charles Hayes during a campaign stop. Although born in the county and once a Democrat, Hayes had joined the Republicans in 1866 and so was hated by his neighbors. As with Langston, the crowd first tried to shout him down, and when that failed, they dragged him from the stage. A number of freedmen intervened, but the Democrats were better armed. Fifty-eight blacks were shot, four of them mortally, with only two whites injured. If black office holders symbolized what African Americans could aspire to, predominantly black or interracial schools, churches, and Union League halls, which were frequently one and the same thing, paved the way for such achievement. As they had virtually since Appomattox, whites torched them almost as rapidly as blacks could construct them. When League members in rural North Carolina returned to their homes after a flag-raising in Halifax, they found a white mob standing in a line across the public road with gun and pistol. In urban areas such as New Orleans, where federal troops remained stationed, Democrats rarely dared to burn schoolhouses. Instead, they organized gangs of boy regulators to barge into classrooms and demand that all students of color leave. That tactic, however, attracted the attention of powerful Republicans when two of the youthful victims turned out to be Governor Pinky B.S. Pinchback's sons. Teachers and schools in the countryside proved safer targets. Schoolmarm Maria Waterbury and her female colleagues were repeatedly hounded by the Ku Klux, 
who constantly surrounded their cabin late at night. Tramp, tramp, tramp went their feet on the porch, she wrote, and we heard them try the locks on the doors and whistle to each other. During the first six months of 1871, vigilantes burned 26 schools in one Alabama county alone. Waterbury prayed loudly during such moments, but when morning began to dawn, she reported the incidents to the authorities. There is an eternal hatred, one state investigating committee concluded, existing against all men that voted the Republican ticket or who belong to the Loyal League or are engaged in teaching schools. The Electric Life of Michael Faraday by Alan Hirschfeld Raincoast Books, 2006 Alan Hirschfeld is professor of physics at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth and an associate of the Harvard College Observatory. Chapter 7 excerpt, A Twitch of the Needle On August 29, 1831, with electrical and magnetic ideas having percolated in his mind for a decade, Faraday launched an all-out pursuit of electromagnetic induction. His key investigative instrument was a contrivance of homely elegance, a forged iron ring six inches in diameter and seven-eighths inch thick, its opposing halves encased in fabric-covered wire like a partly shrouded mummy. The ring was essentially a donut-shaped version of his pocket electromagnet, but with two separate coils of wire. In winding the wires around the ring, Faraday had meticulously interposed lengths of insulating twine, then sandwiched each succeeding wire layer in cloth. Thus there was no contact of metal upon metal within each of the two coils. Electricity could spiral around but not conduct across the turns of wire, nor could it pass between the coils through the iron ring. Faraday readied the wire ends of the primary coil to use modern coinage, for connection to a battery whose current would transform the enclosed iron ring into an electromagnet. The ring would channel its magnetism into the interior of the secondary coil on the opposite side. It was here, in the passive secondary coil, that Faraday sought to induce an electric current from the enclosed magnetism. To discern the feeble flow of current, he extended the wire ends of the secondary coil over a delicately balanced, horizontal, magnetized needle. A rotation of this needle would indicate the presence of electricity in the wire and the success of the experiment. Subsequent experiments involved a more refined version of the indicator needle, a galvanometer. Faraday closed the battery connection to the primary coil. The indicator needle twitched and then settled back to its original position. For an instant, a current had arisen in the secondary coil, going in the opposite direction to that in the primary. Faraday opened the battery connection. Again, the needle twitched, this time the other way. The spurt of secondary current was now in the same direction as the primary current. Between closings and openings of the switch, when the battery's current pumped steadily through the primary coil, the needle remained unmoved. No wonder experimenters had missed the effect. Induction occurs only when the battery is being connected to or disengaged from the circuit, that is, only when the primary current and its associated magnetism are changing. 
Indeed, Faraday mused, it was very much as though a wave of electrical power had surged through the secondary coil and almost immediately subsided. Had he not been looking at the galvanometer at just the right instance, its subtle twitching might have gone unnoticed. Faraday's modest iron ring marked the genesis of the electrical transformer, an essential element in the modern electric power industry and in many small consumer devices. Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, by Rick Perlstein. Published by Scribner, 2008. Rick Perlstein is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, as well as Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus, which won the 2001 L.A. Times Book Award for History. An excerpt from Chapter 8. Celebrities. But who would Nixon face in November? Democratic County Chairman predicted Humphrey would be the nominee, but McGovern appeared to be far ahead on delegates. With the Wallace shooting, the situation became yet more confused. What would happen in the Democratic Convention, opening in July 10th, with Wallace's delegates? If he was incapacitated, would they still be allowed to vote for him? If not, how would they be disposed of? What kind of deals would Wallace be able or prepared to make? On the nomination, on delegate credentials, on the traveling platform hearing set to get underway in 11 cities at the end of May? If things didn't work out to his satisfaction, could he still threaten a third-party bid? A behind-the-scenes figure was now thrust to the forefront, DNC Chair Larry O'Brien, who would be responsible for these delicate and unprecedented questions. Would he decide in the interests of Humphrey, a longtime close associate, or McGovern, who won nearly four times as many votes as Humphrey in the May 23 Oregon primary, or kowtow to the Wallace constituency in the face of the vociferous anti-busing sentiment. Nixon could formulate no coherent strategic plan for the general election until he knew which Democratic Party he might be running against. Hopefully, he would soon have the intelligence he needed. The same team that had broken into the office of Daniel Ellsberg Shrink had established a beachhead at the Howard Johnson across from DNC Chair O'Brien's office at the Watergate complex, ready to effectuate the revised crystal phase of Gordon Liddy's Operation Gemstone. There had already, on May 16th, been a mysterious break-in at the offices of a Washington law firm close to Humphrey. On May 22nd, as the president toasted the chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet in Moscow, Bernard Barker's Cubans flew to D.C. A sixth-floor Howard Johnson's room had been transformed into a listening post, manned by former FBI agent named Al Baldwin. D-Day for cracking Larry O'Brien's office was May 26, the Friday of the Memorial Day weekend. But already things were awry. They were smoother criminals than Arthur Bremer, but not by much. Six Cubans checked into the Watergate's hotel Friday afternoon, but since the committee to re-elect security chief James McCord arrived with only four walkie-talkies, two men had to be struck from the team. They were supposed to refer to each other by aliases. But McCord got flustered and used real names. Hunt and the Cubans were disguised as businessmen 
attending a banquet in the Watergate's Continental Room, which Hunt had booked for its convenient access to a service corridor. Apparently, they decided neither inebriation nor torpor would hinder their mission. The Epicurean Hunt catered an extravagant meal and libations. Nursing a bleeding ulcer, he took his whiskey mixed with milk. He chased off the waiter with a large tip and ran a movie to muffle the sound of their final consultation. Then at 10.30, a security guard poked his head in to tell them their rental time was up. So they turned off the lights and hid in a closet until midnight. But the team's locksmith, proprietor of the Missing Link Key Shop in Miami, couldn't open the door to the service corridor. A second group, led by Liddy, simultaneously cased McGovern campaign headquarters across town, the first of several abortive break-in attempts there. The problem, damned idealistic McGovern volunteers never left the office, even in the middle of the night. The Cubans tried the Watergate again the next night. This time, their only cover was signing the registry that they were visiting the Federal Reserve Board offices on the eighth floor, and this time the door to the DNC office wouldn't fall to the locksmith. He says he doesn't have the right tools, Barker reported to Hunt in Liddy's listening post. Though thanks to Maurice Stans, they had the means to fly the locksmith all the way back to Miami to return the next day with his full set of picks and prize. Liddy's team moved out for another more pre-dawn run at the McGovern offices. Liddy positioned himself in the back alley. In front, they stationed an operative who worked undercover in the McGovern campaign to tell them the lay of the office. A policeman spotted him loitering nervously on this crime-ridden street and ordered him to move along. The men John Mitchell paid for security had just barely avoided getting the chief counsel of the president of the United States campaign staff caught casing a burglary. It was Sunday, May 28th. The locksmith early in the evening pried open a door on the B-2 level of the Watergate parking garage. Alongside a Hunt Liddy operative named Frank Sturgis, he was born Frank Angelo Fiorini, but used a cover name from one of Howard Hunt's novels, he taped the latch open. They continued picking and taping locks all the way up the threshold. The strike team would enter later, removing the tape and locking the doors behind them. It worked. Cubans rifled DNC files, removing documents to photograph. James McCord installed taps on two phones. He tested them with a small pocket receiver and decided they worked to his satisfaction. Across the street, Hunt and Liddy spied the darting flashlight beams across the way and embraced, the horse is in the house. As G. Gordon Liddy wrote in his memoirs, the experience of the past ten years left no doubt in my mind that the United States was at war internally as well as externally. Finally, the good guys had a leg up. His boss was, indeed, harvesting another triumph. In Moscow, Nixon and Brezhnev had signed their historic Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty two days earlier. On the 28th, the president made a historic radio and television address to the people of the Soviet Union. A message of friendship from all the people of the United States and to share with you some of my thoughts about the relations between two countries and about the way to peace and progress in the world. As great powers, we shall sometimes be competitors, but we need never be enemies. To a nation well sick of Cold War tensions and the rotten jungle war it had brought, this proved catnip. In the next Gallup poll, Nixon's approval rating, 49% at the beginning of the year, 
was now 61%. The last six months had been his most successful as president. Inflation was down from 4.4% to 3.2%. It all threw into disarray the best-laid plans of the Democratic presidential contenders, whose assumption as they had planned their campaigns had been that the primary would be where all the action was, because beating this snore of an unpopular president would be easy. Why Poetry by Matthew Sabruder Published by HarperCollins, 2017 Matthew Sabruder is the author of four collections of poetry. He teaches... He is an associate professor in the St. Mary's College of California MFA program. An excerpt from Chapter 1, Three Beginnings and the Machine of Poetry. Poetry isn't merely a more beautiful way to communicate ideas or experiences or feelings. Prose, after all, does that, and can be just as beautiful as poetry, too. I noticed there were, of course, ideas in poetry, but they always seemed just out of reach, somehow both important and also in a way not, or at least not most important. Focusing just on those ideas and trying to say what a poem was really about always felt reductive as if whatever was most important was being left behind in the act of explanation itself. Poetry seemed to be more about something else, something like creating a different sort of mood or mental space or way of thinking. Ludwig Wittgenstein wrote, Do not forget that a poem, although it is composed in the language of information, is not used in the language game of giving information. If not giving information, what is the language of poetry for? What does it do that is different than prose? And why, as readers, do we return to it and preserve it? The concept of genre, a defined category of writing, like poetry or novels or plays, isn't currently fashionable. Many people find such categories too restrictive and fussy. Much of the energy of contemporary literature is in crossing and mixing various genres in single pieces of writing. Yet when it comes to poetry, it can help to think about genre in a more isolated way, at least temporarily, because the question of genre is really a question of purpose. Why did the writer choose a certain type of writing, and how does that choice affect how we should read the work before us? We don't usually need to think about why we are reading something. Usually we have an immediate intuitive sense of what it is for and therefore how to read it. Without needing to be told, we understand the difference between reading a novel and reading the newspaper. We know we should be looking for something different in each of these experiences. Stories and novels create characters and situations and tell stories. Journalism communicates information. Essays engage in that hard-to-categorize effort to explore, however loosely, a certain idea. Editorials and sermons tell us what we should and should not do and believe, and so on. No one can seem to tell us why poems are written and what they are for. 
Why are they so confusing? What are we supposed to be looking for? And what is the point of rhyme, of form, of metaphor, of imagery? Is it somehow to decorate or make more appealing some kind of message of the poem? What is the purpose of poetry? When I am asked such questions, I think of what Paul Valeri, 1871-1945, wrote in Poetry and Abstract Thought. Quote, A poem is really a kind of machine for producing the poetic state of mind by means of words. Unquote. Valeri's description has always seemed to me to be as close as anyone has gotten to describing what poems can do. If the term machine shocks you, if any mechanical comparison seems crude, please notice that while the composition of even a very short poem may absorb years, the action of the poem on the reader will take only a few minutes. In a few minutes, the reader will receive his shock from discoveries, connections, glimmers of expression that have been accumulated during months of research, waiting, patience, and impatience. The poem makes poetry happen in the mind of the reader or listener. It happens first to the poet, and in the course of writing, the poet eventually makes something, a little machine, one that for the reader produces discoveries, connections, glimmers of expression. Whatever it does, it can do again and again, as many times as we need it. The poetic state of mind that poetry makes happen could be described as something close to dreaming while awake, a higher, more aware, more open, more sensitive condition of consciousness. The poem makes this happen for us by placing our mind as we read or listen in consonance with the associations being made by the poem, its discoveries, connections, glimmers of expression. In a letter, Emily Dickinson wrote, If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only way I know it. Is there any other way? I like this answer, too, because, like Valeri's definition, it distinguishes poetry from other forms of writing not by any particular formal quality like rhyme or line breaks or musicality or the use of imagery or metaphor, but by its effect. Her definition is functional and empirical, passionate and subjective. I know poetry, say Dickinson and Valerie, because of how it makes me feel, what it does to me. That brings us to the end of this episode of Excellent Excerpts. I hope something has been interesting. Thank you for listening.